Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors. It's great to see you. If you are a first-time guest, I really want to say welcome to you and would love uh, to meet you after the service. And please stick around for, uh, all of you stick around, but first-time guests, please stick around for the food truck rodeo afterwards. I've been looking forward to this Sunday for a while now because we're starting our new sermon series. City groups and life groups are about to get underway. And again, if you didn't uh, put that sign up and you want to sign up in the offering basket, you can do that at the table afterwards and put it in a basket back there. And then we've got a beautiful day of weather to enjoy outside and uh, for some food and fellowship and hope you'll stick around for that. I love, I love our church. Uh, I love our church. I love what God is doing in our church. Uh, last fall, if you weren't here, we preached through the Psalms as a church and uh, as one theologian said, the Psalms teach us how to pray and how to worship. And our prayer in that series was that God might shape us into a, a more emotionally healthy, prayerful, and worshiping church. And then this past spring, if you weren't here, we preached through the book of Acts, seeing that God has a mission to the whole world, uh, that God's kingdom might come to earth as it is in heaven, that God uses his church to accomplish his mission by the power of the Holy Spirit. And our prayer in that series is that God might make us, Christ Central, a church fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, constantly living on God's mission to the whole world. And this morning, we're starting a new series on the seven deadly sins. And our hope in this series is that God would shape and mold and form us more and more into his likeness, into the image of Christ. Our prayer in this series is that God would make us a church that takes seriously spiritual formation, or in other words, discipleship. And so I'm going to start us as an intro to this series by reading Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. I'm going to ask you to stand as we look at God's Word together this morning. Let's give our attention, our thoughts, our hearts to God's Word this morning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the, after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as, God chose, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would speak to us. Speak, O Lord. Give us ears to hear, give us minds to engage, give us hearts that are soft and tender to, to your leading in us 
individually and you're leading of us as a church body. Would you come now, Lord Jesus, and uh, would you work in a powerful way? Would, would you remove me, uh, Lord Jesus? Would the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you? Would, would we see you clearly as a result of your word this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So I have to be honest with you. Uh, this summer, as I have studied uh, this material and as I've prepared for this series on the seven deadly sins, I have been deeply convicted. Deeply convicted. I have been deeply moved by what I have been learning uh, and, and studying for this. And so I feel a little bit of the need to start by issuing, issuing all of you a, a warning before we enter this series. Uh, and so here it goes. Warning. This study may prove or will prove, if, you're, if you'll stick with us, to be disruptive to your personal complacency and your self-satisfaction. You're warned. It's happened in my life. It's still happening. This study will prove disruptive to personal complacency and self-satisfaction. I don't know if, if you've ever done something or you've acted or reacted in some way and thought to yourself, who, who am I? Who is, who is this person that just kind of came out of nowhere, right? I, I have to admit that sometimes when I'm driving or if I get stuck in traffic, there is a Daniel that comes out <laughs> that, that surprises me. There's frustration and anger, and I'll ask myself, where did that come from? <laughs> who, who was that? Right? Or in other words, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? If you read the local or the national or the international news, you will read about horrific things that are happening and horrific things that people do, and you have to ask this question, what is wrong with the world? And the Bible is really clear with its answer about what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with me, and the answer is not always easy for us to swallow, and, and here it is. Sin. Sin is what's wrong. In verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly. And then there's this long list of sin, and Paul says, Put to death your sin. Put it to death. Theologian John Owen, in this light, is famously known for saying, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Our aim in this series over the next eight weeks is that God might lead us to be actively and intentionally killing sin or putting to death that which is earthly in us so that we might be renewed in the image of our Creator. This morning, my sermon is going to be a little different than normal uh, and a little different than the rest of the sermons because I want to set this series up. And each week from here on out, we will look at one specific sin but this morning, I want to introduce our series, and so we're going to look at three things together. We're going to look at what is sin, why the seven deadly sins, and then lastly, the foundational sin. What is sin, why the seven deadly sins, and the foundational sin? So let's look first. What is sin? What is sin? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 14. Sometimes we use the Westminster Shorter Catechism here. The question is, what is sin? And here's the answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. 
anyone of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, when we hear law of God or law in general, maybe, maybe you're like me, we can think the first thing that comes to our mind is restrictive, suppressive, oppressive, right? We think law and we think don't, not allowed. So then when we think law of God, it can lead us to view God as an oppressive ruler who just doesn't want us to do a host of things. But I think one of the best analogies of the law of God is a fence. Some of you maybe have heard me describe it this way. It's a fence. When we bought our house just down the road two years ago, we had a fence built in our backyard. We immediately put sod grass down to enjoy our backyard, and then we had our son uh, 15 months ago. He was born. And then this past summer, we landscaped the backyard, put some stone down, put some rose bushes up. We, we landscaped, and I take a lot of delight in our backyard. I enjoy working there, and, and Rachel and Henry and I spend a lot of time in the backyard, green grass, rose bushes. Henry loves to play, running, playing in the water, kicking the ball, playing in the mulch and the rocks. We love to spend time in our backyard. But if you leave our backyard and you go into the front of our house, which is Fayetteville, which turns into Elizabeth, uh, there are a ton of cars that drive by. And they don't just drive by, they fly by. <laughs> they are whizzing down the street. And the last thing that I want is for our son Henry to leave our backyard and run out into the front where there's danger and there's the threat of him losing his life. So I built a fence. We built a fence to keep Henry in this place of beauty, green lush grass, flowers, fun, away from danger. See, the fence is not restrictive to our son. It's protective the best life for Henry, the most happy life for our son is found in the backyard, not in the danger and the threat of the front. You see, the law of God is not just restrictive, it's protective. God has given us his laws, his way of living as the most happy life. It is the best life, it's the good life, and it's found within the boundaries of his laws, not in the danger and the threat of doing life in our own way. See, sin is living outside the fence of God's protection. So define sin a little bit for us, right? I want to help us understand sin just a little bit more. I want to give three adjectives that describe the nature of sin. Here are three adjectives to help us understand a little bit more what is sin. The first is sin is insidious. Insidious. Let me define that word for you. It's a little bit bigger word. Sin is insidious. Insidious, proceeding in a gradual, subtle way, but with harmful effects. Gradual, subtle ways, but with harmful effects. If you've ever seen a tree uh, that is entirely strangled and wrapped in ivy, have, have you ever seen a, a big, large tree that's just wrapped in ivy? That ivy has, has wound tightly around that tree, choking it almost like a snake, would choke its victim. The ivy's become so tight, they're untwisting it, it's impossible. It's too large, it's too strong, and hour by hour, that ivy begins to suck the life out of the tree. Yet there was a day that the ivy was small and it was tiny and only started to climb up the tree. But left unchecked, the ivy grew in strength and it attached itself to the tree, and all of a sudden the tree became prey. 
slowly losing its life. Sin works just the same way. It's slow and gradual, but with deadly effects. This is how James in chapter 1, verse 14 describes sin. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, sin starts with just one time, just one time, or just this one time, or just a little, not too much, and then it grows and it becomes just a few times, or just a little bit more, until you find yourself wrapped by that sin, and it's sucking the life out of you. Here's a key indicator for all of us that we may be unaware of the power of sin in our lives. It's when we live in denial. When we live in denial, when we say things like, well, I'm not that bad. That sin will never have its hold on me. You see, Jesus describes Satan as the father of lies. He's the father of lies. He wants nothing more than for us to deny our sin and think we're okay and then little by little fall deeper into sin's grasp on our life. I love the quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, those who are murdered by slow poisoning, die just as surely as those who take arsenic. (laughs) It all ends in death. Sin is insidious. The second thing about sin is that it's rebellious. Rebelliousness is knowing the right way and then doing the opposite, right? Our our son Henry, not to talk too much about him this morning, but uh, there are many things he's not supposed to do, and he knows he's not supposed to do, that we've told him, Henry, no. But he still does them. For instance, I tell him, Henry, don't take the rocks and throw them in our grass. Now, I may be because I have an, an issue with my backyard, right? I may have idolatry with my backyard. But I love my backyard. But I tell him, no, no, Henry, don't take the rocks and throw them in our grass. But he goes up to the, to the rocks, and it's hard for me not to laugh. He walks right up to the rocks, and he goes, no, no. And he points at him, and then, no. And then he grabs them, and it's like, throws him right in the grass. He knows what he's not supposed to do, but he chooses what he wants to do. Sin works in the same way. It's rebellious. It's choosing the old self and the earthly desires over living according to the new self in Christ and Christ's desires. It's rebellious. Lastly, sin is addictive. James chapter 1 says sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You see, there, there comes a time and a point in your life When you've allowed sin to operate freely, that you no longer have a choice. You're no longer choosing sin. Sin is now choosing you. Sin is now using you. Sin becomes enslaving. And our mindset all of a sudden becomes, we must have, we must get, or we must be a certain way. Sin is addictive. That's what sin is. Let's look secondly and why the seven deadly sins? Why, do, why are we looking at this series on the seven deadly sins? Maybe you're wondering, where did this list of the seven come from? Well, the list goes all the way back to the fourth century, actually, with an early church father, John Cassian. Uh, the sixth century, Pope Gregory picks up on it. And then in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas uses this list as a, uh, within the life of the church. And here's the list that Aquinas uses, and it's the list that we're going to use. Envy vainglory, sloth, greed, 
anger, gluttony, and lust. Now, we're not going to go in that order, but that's the seven that we're going to look at. You see, and it has its roots in the life of the early church. We're not making this up. It's hundreds and thousands of years. But there's another thing about this list, is, uh, if uh, most of you are probably aware of this. It, it, this list and these seven have shaped our culture uh, for a long time now. Uh, you can look back to the writer uh, Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales, uses the seven deadly sins. You can look contemporary to movies like Seven, right, with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Our culture has been impacted and influenced by these seven sins. And, and I would also say that our culture has morphed and shaped each of these sins to different meanings than I think that they were originally used, and, and I would say shallower meanings than the Bible speaks about them. The Bible speaks about these seven sins with profound depth and far-reaching applications. I'm warning you, it's, it's convicting. Now, I have to say that the Bible nowhere lists the seven as the list. You can't look anywhere in Genesis to Revelation and find here's the list of the seven deadly sins. But these seven are definitely in the Bible. And I hope you will see over the course of the next eight, eight weeks why these seven make the list. But I want to give you three reasons this morning of why we're looking at these seven. The first reason why we're using the seven deadly sins is for, is for self-examination or moral reflection. Self-examination, moral reflection. God's design in the beginning was to create a world in which humanity walked in perfect relationship with God, perfect fellowship with God, in the garden, in a beautiful place. God gave laws to protect his people from the danger that existed apart from him. You see, God gave us and created us for the good life, the beautiful life. But instead of staying inside the protection of God's laws, we wanted to go exploring and see what was outside, and so we rebelled. We sinned. C.S. Lewis said this. Maybe you've heard this quote. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. See, life in perfect relationship with God, it's the good life. It's the best life. So we need to be constantly examining our life to see if we're living the good life. You see, understanding and recognizing and naming sins for what they are is the first step for us to turn towards the holiday at the sea. It's the first step. Life with God is the beautiful and good and true and full of love life that all of you I know desire. Colossians chapter 3, Paul lists these sins that we're to put to death. Sins that we're to be aware of. And Paul uses this movement of, of dying to the old self and rising to the new self. The movement of dying for us as Christians is the practice of confession. And it's confessing and naming exactly the sin and struggle. Not generally, but specifically naming our sin. So we have to constantly be examining ourselves, and I really believe this list will help us do that. The second thing this list will enable us to do is it'll give us a picture of the virtuous life, the good life, the virtuous life. See, my hope as we study these seven deadly sins is that we won't only see our sin, but we will see what we're missing out on. 
we will see that we often settle for making mud pies in the slum rather than a holiday at the sea. Each of these sins that we will study, they won't necessarily have an opposite, but they, they will give us a virtue, a virtue that counters the sin. If you've ever read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the good and virtuous life, life and obedience to God. So as we study each sin, we're going to see a virtue that we as Christians are called to live out. For instance, when we look at greed, we're going to see that the virtue that scriptures apply to greed is generosity. And so on and so on. You're going to see with each sin there's a virtue. So our study is not only going to allow us to examine our lives, but it will call us towards the good life. And then lastly, the third thing it's going to enable us to do is going to enable us to be formed and shaped and molded by spiritual practices. By spiritual practices. Listen to Dallas Willard. This is a little bit of a longer quote. He says, We are saved by grace, of course, and by it alone, not because we deserve it. That is the basis of God's acceptance of us. But grace does not mean that sufficient strength and insight will be automatically infused into our being at the moment of need. A baseball player who expects to excel in the game without adequate exercise of his body is no more ridiculous than the Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate exercise in godly living. See, living as Christian, as a Christian, takes discipline and practice. But these activities are enabled by the saving work of Christ. Not replacing it, they enable, Christ's saving work enables it. And so what, what Willard is saying is that living a virtuous life does not just happen. It doesn't just happen. It comes and is acquired through practice. You see, both sin and virtue settle in through years of formation and through years of practice in our lives. I read this analogy and really liked it in thinking about spiritual formation. Imagine there's this big winter snow that blows in to Durham. Blows into Durham and everyone heads to Central Park for that somewhat of a hill that exists in Durham, right, that goes down to the, to the playground. Everybody heads, heads there to to sled, for a big sledding party. Everybody goes. And the first group heads out, and they make a path, a smooth path, the first, the first one down through the freshly fallen snow. And as the first one goes down, it's a little slower because they're carving out a rut, right, the first rut. Then the other sleds follow over and over down the same path, smoothing and packing down the snow. And after many trips, a well-worn groove develops, a path which is really hard to steer out of. And see, the groove enables the sleds to stay aligned and on course, gliding rapidly and smoothly and easily on their way. Spiritual formation is like that. The first time down the spiritual practice of prayer, your first run down the hill of reading Scripture will require some effort. And it might be tough going, tough sledding, but gradually a smooth track forms that you begin to glide down with ease. See, virtue and becoming like Christ, living in the reality of your new self happens over the long haul. There is no easy substitute for daily practice and daily repetition. So what this study is 
also going to enable us to do is not just self-examination, not just giving a picture of the good life, but give us spiritual practices that will enable us to move toward living that life. To put it another way, our study in the seven deadly sins will enable us to address what's wrong, gain a picture of the best life we were created for, and then teach us how to get there. I'm excited for it, looking forward to it. Well, let's look lastly. We've looked at what is sin, why the seven deadly sins. We've got to end with this. What is the foundational sin? What's the foundational sin? And there's a sin that's not listed in Colossians chapter 3, and there's a sin that's, that I did not list on the seven deadly sins, though some people include it, and it's this sin, the sin of pride. And the reason I'm using the list without pride is because I believe Scripture, and I believe what Thomas Aquinas said and what C.S. Lewis has said and many others have said, is that pride is the foundational sin. Pride is the root sin. Pride is the sin out of which all other sins blossom. If I were to draw a picture of a tree of sin, if I were to give you, draw you a picture, the roots of that tree would be pride, the, the trunk of that tree would be pride, the branches coming out of that tree would be the seven sins we're going to address over the next eight weeks, and then all the sins that we can confess and think of are fruits coming out of those seven. The root of all sin is pride. It's the seedbed out of every, in which every sin blossoms. If you read Genesis chapter 3, you've seen that, that pride was in the original sin with Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 verse 4 says, You will surely not die, the serpent says to the woman. And then verse 5, the serpent says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. They were tempted to be like God. See, pride is the fundamental violation and disorder of how we were created to be, which is love, the love of God and the love of others. But pride is the fundamental violation because it places the love of self before the love of God and before the love of others. It places you at the center of your existence. Let me define it for you in another way. Pride is self-absorption. Pretty easy. It is self-consumption. One author described pride as the unsmiling concentration on self. There's a Stanford Law professor who wrote about an architectural project. Listen to this. This made me laugh. There was a large hotel in an American city, big hotel, and this hotel was having complaints about the slowness of its elevators. People were having to wait. They were tired of waiting. So here was the remedy. They installed mirrors next to the elevators. And the complaints ended. No more complaints. <laughs> People were willing to wait as long as they had to, as long as they could see themselves. Pride is self-absorption. Pride leads to every other sin. So every week we're going to address pride or the absorption with self in some way because it's the root that leads to the seven. Now, maybe you're sitting there and the denial right, of sin is starting to kick in for, for some of you here. You're, you're thinking, I'm not that prideful. I'm pretty humble. Uh, I'm not focused on myself. Let me give you a few ways to diagnose your pride. Now, the seven deadly sins will be diagnostic for you every week from here on out. But let me give you a few ways this morning. Now, I borrowed these from different places, but listen to these diagnostics of 
how pride might be at work in your life. Pride makes you a relational consumer. You see, in pride, you don't relate to people in order to be a blessing to them. You're not there to serve them. They're, they're there to meet your needs. So here's a question for you. When people finish relating to you, do they feel drained in their interaction with you or do they feel filled up in their interaction with you? Makes you a relational consumer. Pride also makes you condescending. That may be obvious, but in pride, if pride is at work, all of your relationships you enter into looking down on other people. And so here's a question for you. Maybe you think, I don't look down on other people. Here's a question for you. When you enter into a room, you walk into a crowd of people, do you size everyone up in that room in order to see how you measure up with everyone there, to see where your place is in that room? See, pride is condescending. Pride, thirdly, makes you ironically cowardly. You see, there's a form of pride that says, I must abase myself. I, I deserve nothing. Therefore, I can enjoy nothing. See, in pride, there is an obsession with lowliness in your position, which is ironic, right? We would never guess that to be pride, but it is still an extreme focus on self, which is pride. Fourth, pride makes you unable to take criticism. Unable to take criticism. If, if you are not prideful, when criticism comes your way, you're neither indifferent to it nor devastated by it, which means you're teachable. You're able to listen. You're able to take critique, and you're not devastated. But when you are prideful and criticism comes your way, it rocks your world. Here's the last diagnostic. Pride makes you unable to receive thanks. See, if someone wants to give you a compliment and you just can't stand it, it, you just, it embarrasses you, and you try to avoid it. Here's why, and this is often me. <laughs> because you don't want that person to know, really, you really don't want that person to know just how badly you want the compliment. How badly you need it, so you avoid it. Or on the other hand, if you just have to get praise from people when you do something, right, when you're doing something you need praise, or if you quit, Doing something when people aren't nice to you or if they don't notice you, if they didn't give you thanks, then pride is working in you. Now, all of those are extremely convicting to me. Pride is the foundational sin that every one of us needs to be confessing on a regular basis. The virtue that blossoms forth in our lives when pride is being killed, when pride is being confessed, is humility. Paul says in verse 12, put then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. See, if pride is the fundamental violation and disorder of love because it places love of self before the love of God and before the love of others, then humility is the fundamental virtue that allows us to have the right order of love. Because humility places the love of others and the love of God before the love of self. Humility allows a person to be both confident and a person who doesn't even think of themselves, who thinks of themselves less. Not a person, catch this, that thinks less of themselves, but a person who just doesn't even think of themselves. Humility puts us in a posture of submission 
Submission to God is the one who has supremacy over all things, and it puts us in a, in a posture of submission to one another because we see that our call is to love those around us. So how can this happen for us? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, the way we began this morning in this passage. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. It is not natural to live with humility. Pride comes much easier to us. The power to heal our pride and empower humility comes as we look to the Lord Jesus. And we see that he was willing to literally die to self because he loved his father and he loved us so much. Jesus is the picture of the virtuous life. He is the only one who was perfectly confident in who he was. Never self-abasing. Confident. He knew he was loved by his father and yet he didn't think of himself. His mind and his heart were always set to love his Father and to love us. The picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 5 is that Jesus is a lion and a lamb. He's a lion and a lamb. He's a lion who was willing to be slain and a lamb who rules and reigns. And when we confess our pride and our sin specifically, and we look to Jesus, we will then live with lionish lambness. We will be a lambish lion, confident in the love of God to us, and humble to the point of dying for the sake of God and for the sake of others. See, last week, Timothy set this series up perfectly by talking about the rhythm or the cycle of the Christian life. Repentance, right? You're going in a circle. Repentance, confession, Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which then leads us into the worship of the true God, which then leads us to love what God loves and hate what God hates, which is really the virtuous life. That's the good life, loving what God loves, hating what God hates. May God lead us, church, in this series to be pierced in the conviction of our sins, specifically, may it lead us to Christ, the picture of the perfect life, the good life, restoring us to fellowship with our God in worship, and then leading us to live the good life day by day. It won't be easy, and we definitely can't do it alone. We need one another. I'm going to warn you again, this will be disruptive, and it will be painful. But no pain, no gain, right? Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would bless your word, not mine, but yours. And that you would lead us into deep conviction so that you could lead us to the heights of life with you. The good and beautiful life, Lord, that we would live that in Christ. Lord, thank you for this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this table is a weekly practice, is a weekly running down the hill, a sled run, if you will, of, of the rhythm of coming to the table of God where we have the privilege of confessing specifically our sins and then having the Lord Jesus say, I forgive you. I forgive you as far as the east is from the west, body broken, blood shed, 
for your acceptance and for your forgiveness. It's a weekly practice where every Sunday we come to this and we all come down together. We come confessing and we come to receive, right? You're not coming taking this morning, right? We're not takers. We are receivers this morning. We are receiving the mercy and the grace and the love of God to us. And we come as one body, one family, to one loaf, one cup, where life is found in Christ, where where our hope and our confidence are set yet again. And I realize for some of you this may be your first kind of run down this practice of the Lord's table. Maybe you have not done this often, and, and maybe it's awkward. Maybe this was tough sledding for you this morning, and that's okay. We're glad you're here. We're glad you'll start the party right, of becoming more like Jesus as we receive Christ. And for others of you this morning, maybe you're overly comfortable with this table, and you're coming and you're taking and you're going back, and you're not mindful that you're a recipient of the grace, that you're not mindful of the beauty and the glory of what is happening in a simple meal of bread and wine as one family. I pray you won't become too comfortable, but that every time we come into this meal, we would see the glory of Christ to us as his church and as his people. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're, we're so glad you're here. We say that every week. Uh, and we want you to feel comfortable with where you are uh, in the journey and process of of asking questions about Christianity, but this is a meal for for those who identify with Jesus, for those who say, I'm in his family, I trust him, though I struggle, I trust him. And if if you're not there yet, that's okay. But we'd ask you not to to come and and receive, but uh, of the meal, we'd ask you to receive in one of two ways. You can come forward and make this motion, and we'd love to say a prayer of blessing for you, to receive God's blessing and prayer for you, or you can sit in in your pews and think about what's been sung and and taught and preached this morning, uh, and perhaps receive the grace of God for the first time. Uh, but for those of you who know Jesus, you trust Christ, though you struggle, though you, though you have difficulty, always, always being certain who God is and what he says he will do, you can come. And if you're joyful, and if you're hopeful this morning, we come, being reminded yet again where our joy and our hope comes from. So no matter where you are, Christian, you're welcome to this table. Uh, If you have children, you're welcome to go get them from children's church or nursery. We'd love for you to bring them down, and we'd love to pray for them uh, as they come down. If they don't know Jesus yet, uh, we'd love to say a prayer of blessing for them. For the rest of you, ushers are going to come and let you out row by row, so you don't have to be in a rush. The ushers will, will let you know, and you can come forward and receive. There's red wine, white grape juice. There's gluten free bread if you want that. Uh, as regular bread, um, and you partake up front and then head back to your seat. You can partake as a family, you can partake alone, you can partake as a group with a group of friends. However, you want to do that is great. So I'm going to pray uh, for those uh, for this time and for those uh, who are serving. You can come down as I pray. Let's let's pray together. Lord God, we we ask that uh, as we come into this meal every week. Just like we need to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, uh, and sometimes we skip those meals, but but Lord, we don't get the right nourishment apart from those daily rhythms, daily practices. Lord, we don't get the right spiritual nourishment apart from these daily practice and rhythm of, of coming to you and confessing and then being fed by you together as a body, knowing that you forgive us 
and you cleanse us and you restore us and you give us hope yet again to leave this place reminded of who we are in you and the life that you've called us to, that we might be a blessing to this city and to this world. Lord Jesus, bless this meal, we pray in your name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood shed for you, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come and feast.